We don't always sing our hymns and songs and spiritual songs and psalms a cappella, but when we do sing them a cappella, it's very pretty. I'm very thankful to hear your voices and you raising them to the Lord. You'll turn to Daniel chapter 9. We'll continue this morning our study in the book of Daniel. I want to read verses 1 through 19, and then we'll pray. Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what, has, what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, 
who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that by the power of your Spirit, you work in the reading of your word. And yet you have commanded for us, as your people, in your gathered churches, bodies, that we not only worship under the reading of your word, but under its preaching. Lord, I am not worthy to stand in this place in and of myself to speak these words to these who have gathered to hear and worship. I pray that you use me as your vessel and that you deal with my soul alike. I pray that your spirit would deal with the souls of those who hear this word preached, that glory would be brought unto you that by the power of the Spirit, conviction, encouragement, and strengthening would take place according to your will and your purpose alone. Our minds are weak. We've had a lot that's gone on in our times and days this past week. Lord, will you enliven our minds that we will not doze off into not thinking about the truth of your word. Strengthen our bodies even as we listen and strengthen our souls so that we will live lives glorifying unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you can imagine for a moment what it would be like to be in the state of Georgia and to have heard word that troops were nearing the borderlines of our state coming from a foreign land to take our state over. And the word from the front lines continued to get worse and worse. The news was not good. Every day, every week, the soldiers were continuing to encroach from multiple sides, taking over the whole of the state. People were being pulled from their homes and sent away. 
As the news gathers and the time comes, you hear the soldiers themselves nearing your own home. And they begin to pull your family out of your home, take you into captivity and your family, and they whisk your children away to a foreign land. So it was in the day of Daniel. Everything he knew, everything his family had known for generations. Jerusalem was now captive. Israel had been captive for well over 100 years, some 120 years or so. And now, Judah, it was all, all under the Babylonian Empire. Daniel had lived this. He had lived it now for a long time. At the time of this prayer, he's somewhere in his 60s, late 60s, nearing 70. He is an elderly man, and he has known and seen little of his country for a long time. He has been an elder statesman for some time now, and the Lord has used him in many, many ways to deal with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. As he has had these several visions that we spoke of in chapters 7 and 8 and what would come to these four great ruling nations and the kings and the successors in those nations. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All these visions given to him. He was exhausted and sick for days after those visions. And sometime after his recovery, in the first year of Darius, the son of of Harassus, or Ahasuerus, excuse me, he's sitting and he's thinking on these things. Daniel doesn't just take a moment in these years to ponder or pontificate in some odd or strange way. In 537 B.C., he begins to read the Word of God. Not as though he hasn't read it before. But he was reading it once again. And upon reading the very Word of God, he comes across truths that begin to deal with his mind and his soul. It says in verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Firstly, this morning, Daniel reads and remembers God's word. Daniel reads and remembers God's word. Isn't it interesting here that an elderly man in this stage of his life has not forgotten the importance of the Word of God? He's not thinking on just his own wisdom here. He's not saying to himself, I've seen it all. I've lived things that nobody else has ever lived. I've been second to kings of great nations in command. I have set under these things. I have also been a part of ruling some of these nations and countries 
I have had these visions. God has used me and spoken in this way. And so therefore, I can say and do what I wish. No, he reads and remembers the word of God. Tells us that we never come to a place in our Christian lives, whether it is in time or is it in space, that we can do without the word of God. Whether it is read by us or read to us, we need God's Word. Now certainly Daniel didn't have the Bible as we have it today. It probably would have been some collection of of scrolls or uh, some parchments that had been put together and bound together in a way that he might could read it. But as he sits and he reads, he reads the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Now Jeremiah approximately lived somewhere between 650 B.C. and 582 B.C. That means that Jeremiah himself actually saw the captivity. He prophesied before the captivity, as we noted in the reading of Jeremiah 25, and we'll speak a little bit about that in a moment. But he also prophesied during the early portions of the captivity. It's a remembrance that the captivity itself for the nation of Israel or of Judah, uh, that it was not something that happened all in one fell swoop. It took periods of years for that full uh, context of the captivity to take place. All of the captivity was not completed until around 587 B.C. But when it was completed... All of Israel, including Judah, had never seen anything like it. And Daniel had lived through it, and he comes now and he's reminded by Jeremiah, who the Lord had spoken to and used as his prophet, he's reminded by the very word of Jeremiah written down. He's reading it. I observed in the books... He's reminded of something very specific. The completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Well, we could say that he read from the scrolls not only Jeremiah's prophecy, he read from the scrolls the coming completion of the captivity. He read from the scrolls the coming completion of the captivity. Now, this is specifically speaking of Babylon's captivity. In Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 17, which we read earlier, there was the prophecy and the promise of what would happen through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And remember, that was prophesied uh, probably uh, some 25 to 30 years before it actually happened. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Somebody could prophesy of what exactly would happen to Judah and the complete captivity of the nation of Israel in its whole. But not only did God give 
Jeremiah that word, but he also gave Jeremiah the word of this completion of what would happen. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is mentioned specifically in the captivity itself. And then in verse 11 of Jeremiah 25, it says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon, which was mentioned earlier as Nebuchadnezzar, and they'll serve him 70 years. And the very next verse says, Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, declares the Lord. He punishes them for their iniquity. And he says, and he punishes the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. This same prophecy is, almost, is also given a little bit later in Jeremiah in chapter 29. Beginning in verse 10 of 29 It says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now Daniel's reading of prophecy, and in that prophecy there is... There is the idea of not only destruction, but this is judgment. Judgment brought upon Israel for what they had done over the period of generations upon generations upon generations. But it's judgment upon these nations who God uses as his tool. It's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as they have gone against God's people. When Daniel begins to read this, he realizes all of this captivity that was prophesied and promised about, God also promised a culmination. God also promised that he would bring his people back. God also promised that there would be a time of relief. In the opening of the book of Ezra, we see that relief coming. As we note, Cyrus allowing the people to return. Now Daniel is seeing this in the book of Jeremiah before that actually occurs. But it's nearing. Daniel is recognizing that that return is nearing. Daniel is also recognizing the culmination of the visions that he has had. Cyrus was mentioned in those visions, Medo-Persia coming to deal with Babylon. We spent a lot of time looking in chapters 7 and 8 at what would take place to Medo-Persia. 
What would take place, excuse me, to Babylon through Medo-Persia? And Medo-Persia being dealt with by Greece. And now Daniel is realizing these things are falling into place. It's nearing that 70-year period. It's not there yet, but we are really, really, really close. And so Daniel, in that moment, has what is a very interesting reaction. Nothing wrong for, with jumping for joy occasionally, okay? I, you, you all know me. I can jump for joy. Um, but that's not what he does. He doesn't run around screaming and going nuts. He doesn't scream through all the streets. He doesn't run up and down to every house screaming, The desolation's coming to an end! Woohoo! Notice Daniel's reaction. Verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And in verse 4, we turn to hear the prayer itself. So number two this morning, Daniel prays in confession according to God's Word. Daniel prays in confession according to God's Word. Remember, this prayer comes after he has read God's Word and thought about its truth and promises. This is a prayer that's an outworking of the Word of God in his soul, in his mind. It it ought to let us know that there is a, a real sense of connectedness between prayer and the Word of God. And it ought to let us know that our prayers shouldn't be mindless. They ought to be thoughtful. Even when they're prayed with enthusiasm, they ought to be thoughtful and careful. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep His commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. There are five matters that I want you to recognize in this prayer this morning. Daniel prays in confession according to God's word, but there's five matters in the prayer that are of substance and importance. Firstly, he prayed in commemoration of God's covenant faithfulness. Upon reading this in Jeremiah, he's reading what? God is covenantally faithful. He made a covenant with his people that he would keep them. And therefore, he's not giving them over to this desolation forever. He will continue to show his faithfulness to his people. We see this in verse 4. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him. We see it in verse 15 as well. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself, as it is this day we have sinned, we have been wicked. Here's the idea once again. He's appealing back to Scripture. 
from Moses' scripture of the understanding of Egypt and what had taken place. Had God not shown that he brought his people out of the captivity of Egypt? He's reminded in this prayer of God's faithfulness, not only from the prophecy of Jeremiah, but remembering God had been a God who was always doing this. He was always bringing his people back to himself. So he prayed in commemoration of God's covenant faithfulness. Number two, he prayed in confession of his and Israel's sin, rebellion, and guilt. He prayed in confession of his and Israel's sin, rebellion, and guilt. Verse 5. We have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. He doesn't gloss over the issue at all here in the prayer. We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've knowingly, knowingly transgressed God's law and His Word. And we did it in wickedness and rebellion. That's not the identification that many people want to talk about in today's society. Matter of fact, I'll just be honest with you, I don't really like it all that much myself. A part of me says, I don't want anybody to look at me and go, you're being wicked. Who really wants to hear that? You're a rebellious, wicked person. Who are you to speak to me like that? That, it, It gets up in us, doesn't it? You wicked, rebellious person. This tells us the sinful heart is real. And it's not just something that's external. It's the idea of us being sinful from the core. A sin nature is what we have. Even as believers, remaining sin in flesh causes us at times to still be self-righteous in a way, trying to prove ourselves to be worthy of something we're not. He states plainly, they turned aside from the commandments in verse, five, in verse 5. They did not listen to the prophets, God's word, verse 6 and 10. And they all transgressed his law, verse 5 and 11. Verse 11, indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us. I tell you, I love the grace of God. But I can only love His grace because He is very serious about judging sin. 
We live in a society today that wants to talk about grace but does not want to talk about sin and does not want to hear about proper judgment. That doesn't mean you can't be forgiving of people's mistakes. It doesn't mean you can't be kind to people. But when you live in a culture that blatantly says a person can identify as anything they want to identify as. And if we as Christians go along with that and act like that is not a big deal or not a problem, then we ourselves are transgressing God's law. It is unkind on our part if we don't speak that truth among the peoples of this country. We do it graciously, we do it kindly, we do it thoughtfully, but we must speak rightly these truths. Our society today says, well, you're not being kind if you disagree with me. Folks, that's so twisted and ridiculous. If you're, you and I aren't willing at certain moments thoughtfully to carefully respond to some of the cultural ideology and mentality that goes on, then we're being unkind to these people by not speaking the truth to them. You cannot identify as a cat unless you're a cat. And even then, a cat doesn't identify as anything. It just does. This world we're living in has gone nuts. And we're the ones that have to continue in God's truth. We have to realize that when we don't do it, we're transgressing God's law and he will bring judgment. And Daniel is praying, Lord, I see now why the judgment came. Thirdly, he prayed in comparison of God's being and ways versus Israel's being and ways. He prayed in comparison or contrast of God's being and ways versus Israel's. He prayed, God is righteous, verse 7. He also prayed in verse 7 and verse 8 that God has nothing to be ashamed of. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. Notice he never calls God out for anything God needs to be ashamed of. What's he telling you about the very being of God in his prayer? God in and of himself, no matter what he does and when he does it, he has nothing to be ashamed of. Even when God uses evil in his sovereignty to bring about the good of his people, he has nothing to be ashamed of. Any context in which evil has come about 
Whatever discussion or debate you want to have about the idea of evil and when it entered and how it entered, if you're one that's reading a lot of documents on those kind of things, we'll have those conversations. But it doesn't matter the context, the, the, the perspective or the, the detail of the perspective that you may take. Superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, all those things. I, we can talk about those words and get all that worked out. But at the end of the day, we must say God is sovereign over all things, all things, and nothing that has come into being has come into being outside of His sovereignty. And so therefore, even evil is inside of His sovereignty, and He may use it and does use it for His glory and by His will alone. And when He does it, He has nothing to be ashamed of even with dealing with evil. There were many atrocities committed against the people of Israel when they were taken over in 722 B.C. There were many atrocities committed against the people of Judah when they were taken over from 605 B.C. to 587 B.C. Everybody wants to talk about atrocities. That's the big word. We don't even know atrocities in our country. All these people screaming about atrocities in our country, most of them, 99% of them, have no idea. Even the wickedness that comes in our country is often but a small bit in peace of what is happening all over this world and this globe. And Daniel's saying, you know what? God uses it all and he has nothing to be ashamed of. But we, he says, we have something to be ashamed of because we've sinned against you. It's a different kind of prayer, folks. This is a thoughtful, biblically-minded prayer. This is a man on his face before God. I, I, I admit it, it's, it's not quite like Isaiah. I get that. But here's a man on his face before God realizing and seeing it for what it is. Saying, God, we've sinned against you. When I compare and contrast who you are in your ways versus our being and our ways, there's just there's no way to mix the two. You're righteous and we're not. You have nothing to be ashamed of, and we have so much to be ashamed of. He says, You're holy. Well, lastly, he prayed and, well, I don't think that's lastly. I told you all a story. That's not lastly. That's number four. Forgive me. Number four, he prayed in confirmation of God's promises and prophecies of justice. He prayed in confirmation of God's promises and prophecies of justice. Verses 12 through 14 is this whole understanding that God's word has been confirmed. Daniel's saying, I am a living witness to what God promised in the prophet of, through the prophet Jeremiah. He's saying, God used Jeremiah to tell the people years before, you're not walking in the light of God's truth. You're not obeying His commandments. You are openly wicked and you are going against him and you're doing it knowingly and he will bring desolation upon you. Isaiah had done the same earlier. 
for Israel. But not only was it promised in these prophets, but in some sense Daniel is even pointing to Moses here because when you look at Leviticus 26, 14 through 39, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, you'll see that God told the people, if you disobey me, if you do not walk in my ways, this is what will happen to you. You will be brought down. Now I'm summing up those verses. That's the Brandon Smith paraphrase. Spend some time. Leviticus 26, 14 through 39. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. Go look at what God said. When the establishment of the law was given... God told the people, if you walk in my ways, it'll go well with you. If you don't, it's not going to go well. So even in Daniel's prayer, he's reaching back and saying, this was given to you long ago through the prophet Moses. And furthermore, Isaiah and Jeremiah have given it to Israel and Judah together. These things have been reminded and told to you time and time again. Now think about that for a second. How many thousand years at least two thousand years goes by and how patient and gracious is God that he doesn't bring his people to this great desolation over a time he's so covenantally faithful he's so compassionate he's so gracious and merciful he gives them this 1500 2000 year period and he continues to try to teach them and show them and usher them and move them and shepherd them and finally he says No, I've been compassionate enough. Judgment will come. It's a reminder of what's going to happen when Christ returns, isn't it? The fullness of the gospel will have been sent out. The fullness of the times will have been made. And God will say, I've shepherded. I've been so gracious these 6,000 years if he returns soon. Or maybe it's another three or 4,000, I don't know. But whenever it is, he'll say, I've been compassionate. I've been patient. I've been gracious and loving kind. And you still rebelled. And you have not bowed the knee to my son and repented and believed. And he will bring judgment. That doesn't make us happy, does it? But all fullness dwells in repenting and believing in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All these promises and these prophecies of justice, Daniel has seen them unfold, and it brings him to pray before God, so much so that lastly he prayed in confession, asking for God to forgive the people. He asked for forgiveness in verse 9 and 19. He asked for forgiveness according to God's righteousness and compassion in verses 4, 9, 16, and 18 through 19. He comes before God and not only does he ask for forgiveness, he asks for forgiveness according to God's righteousness, not his. He didn't come before God and say, look what I've done. He said, no, no, according to your righteousness, who you are. He didn't make any appeal to 
how nice of a person he was. Don't you see, God, what I've done? Don't, don't you see how I've worked among these pagans for this many years? These Gentiles, look at what I've done. God. No, 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 no. He, he comes to God and says, no, it's, it's about your righteousness and your compassion. Daniel, after reading the word of God, is brought to a place to pray to the one true living God in the context of understanding. I'm not just praying for this nation. I'm dealing with the fact I'm a sinner too. I hope you will pray for your leaders as you've been commanded to do so throughout the scripture and especially by Paul in his letter to Timothy. But I hope you don't pray self-righteously. I hope you don't go before God and say, God, help that Joe Biden and look at me, aren't I a lot better than he is? Will you and I be the, the Pharisee or the publican? Do the things of those people surrounding the leadership of our country, do they just make me want to scream and go nuts sometimes? Yes, I'll admit that to you. But if I go to God and pray for them on the basis that I somehow am so much better than they are, then I've forgotten the gospel in my prayer. How do you really know if you were the president that you really would do that much better? How do you know that power wouldn't get to your head too? How do you know that if you weren't one of those inner circle people probably running most everything behind our president, even helping him walk out the door, how do you know that you wouldn't be engrossed in the power play of the moment? I can tell you, if you weren't thoughtful about it, you wouldn't be Daniel. You'd be taking it for yourself just like I would. Oh, don't we love power? Don't we love control? Daniel has seen that he is not a man in control. His prayer has shown us that he realizes God has been sovereign in all of this. God began the judgment, and God will end the judgment. God began the captivity and he will end the captivity. I want to leave you with these six thoughts just quickly. Number one, the word of God speaks truth to all people. The word of God speaks truth to all people, including prophets. <laughs> when we think of the prophets, boy, you think of it. Oh, they could speak the word of God. They were prophets. You know what? Apparently they needed the word of God too. Prophets need the word of God. What do you and I need? We need the word of God. Number two, prayer and the word of God go hand in hand. Prayer and the word of God go hand in hand. I've been struck over the years, and I, I, I wish I could say that I'd done better at this myself, but I've been struck over the years the importance of praying the scripture. Even doing that publicly, there's been some times at some of our associational meetings we have a public prayer time each morning. And there's been many times where I've just 
taken a large portion of scripture and just prayed that. And even this morning, Robin gave a good example. I've, I've, I've noticed Robin over the years doing that. And I, I've seen that even with Scott as he's prayed. Praying the scripture itself or the ideas of scripture. We really need that in our prayers, not just our, our words. There's very specific things and ways to pray, and God's word gives us these ideas. I encourage you to think about what it means to pray from and in and through the scripture. I'm saddened to say that there's been many times I haven't done that as well as I should have, even before you folks. My prayers sometimes have been rote and thoughtless, and I've said a lot of the same things over and over again. And I wish I hadn't done that for years. I wish I had been more thoughtful about those things, and, and I ask you all to forgive me. Number three. Prayer is often us pleading with God to listen after we did not listen and obey his word. Prayer is often us pleading with God to listen after we did not listen and obey his word. Isn't that odd to you? God gives me an opportunity to go plead with him to listen to me after most of the time the reason I'm praying is is because I didn't listen to him to begin with. Does that not show the compassion of God to us? That'll preach, but I'll leave it there. Number four, prayer is the only vehicle to make confession and repentance of sin. Prayer is the only vehicle to make confession and repentance of sin. I think we need to think about that. There's another reason we need the Word of God tied with prayers because the Word of God brings our sins before us specifically. And then we can turn and pray the prayers of Psalm 51 and so forth, the ideas of Psalm 32. We can pray those prayers in that sense, and that's the vehicle we have for confession and repentance. Whether it's a prayer we actually use our voice or it's a prayer in our minds. But that is the vehicle, the, the only vehicle to make confession and repentance of sin. If we think our ongoing actions of our personal righteousness are going to be a vehicle of confession and repentance, that we've misunderstood the gospel. Number five. Prayer recognizes that God has nothing to be ashamed of in being or act. Prayer recognizes that God has nothing to be ashamed of in being or act. Let's pray like Daniel did. And pray to God, you don't have anything to be ashamed of, so therefore we glory in you alone. And then pray rightly too, Lord, we have everything to be ashamed of. We've sinned against you. That needs to be in specifics many times. But I think we need to recognize God has nothing to be ashamed of. We live in a, even a church culture in America now that does a lot of apologizing for God, and it's not good apology. There's bad apologetics because it's filled with a bunch of apologizing for God. 
We don't need to apologize for God. He does not need the monkey off his back. He is sovereign and in control. He's pure and holy and righteous in all of his ways. He does not need our help to apologize for him. We need to live and speak his truth and love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Number six, prayer recognizes that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Prayer recognizes that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's take that thought in the Lord's Supper table. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been faithful this day that we could come and worship you alone in the reading and praying and singing of your word and even the preaching of your word. We pray that these things have been done according to your truth, that we would glory in you alone. Where we have failed, Lord, forgive us. Show your covenant compassion once again. Bring us now to your table that we would think rightly about our need for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.